So tonight we're going to be in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. We start there. We have been looking at Solomon, and the last couple of weeks have been all about Solomon completing the building of the temple. It took almost 10 years to do it, approximately 10 years. And then we saw the, the Ark of the Covenant brought into the temple, and the glory of the Lord there in chapter 5 filled the temple as the priests were ministering. It was glorious. It was an amazing day. They're doing the animal sacrifices out front in the courtyard on the bronze altar. And then Solomon said that amazing prayer that we studied in detail last week, verse by verse, and topically on Saturday back in chapter 6. So as we come to chapter 7, we're still on that day and on these events. It's an amazing, like, it's, it's such a profound event. It just keeps going on in the narrative. So we pick it up in chapter 7, verse 1, on the heels of Solomon's prayer, which we studied last week. When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God, and the priests attended to their services. The Levites also with the instruments of the music of the Lord, which King David had made to praise the Lord. And they were saying, For his mercy endures forever, whenever David offered praise by their ministry. So that was like a custom and tradition. The priests sounded trumpets opposite them while all Israel stood. Furthermore, Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was in the front of the house of the Lord. For there he had offered burnt offerings and the fat of the peace offerings. Because the bronze altar which Solomon had made was not able to receive the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat. At that time, Solomon kept the feast seven days and all Israel with him. A very great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt. That's the north to the south, the whole width of Israel. And on the eighth day, they held a sacred assembly, for they observed the dedication of the altar seven days and the feast seven days. And that would have been the Feast of Tabernacles. seems to be the timeline that this was happening. Verse 10. On the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people away to their tents, joyful and glad of heart for the good that the Lord had done for David, for Solomon, and for his people Israel. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house, and Solomon successfully accomplished all that, the, all that came into his heart to make in the house of the Lord and in his own house. Let's stop here for a minute. What an event. Again, we've been looking at this event. This has been unfolding for the last couple of weeks for us, and now after all the prayer and everything, here we go again. The cloud fills the temple. They say what they said back in chapter 5. The Lord is good. His mercy endures forever. And it's an amazing thing. It's a holy moment. All these animal sacrifices are happening. It's just, it's such an incredible scene to picture it, if you can, of the magnitude of the event and the uniqueness of the event in human history. When has there ever been anything like this in all of human history? The dedication, the consecration, 
all that. What an amazing, what an amazing thing for this generation to have been a part of. And Solomon. Man, Solomon's been king for a decade. He's done just a fantastic job. It's a difficult job, a job without precedent. And even though his dad set him up to be successful with it, the plans, the possessions, and the people to get it done, still, man, what, what an amazing thing to have done. As I look at this segment of scripture, and as we look at it together, what gets my attention in application comes right away where it says the glory of the Lord filled the temple. We have fire from heaven accepting the offering. Like that is just, when does that ever even happen? Like what's fire from heaven? Is it like a lightning bolt striking it? Like, is it like a holy fire coming down? I mean, who, who can even know? Is it like the burning bush? I mean, but it did consume it, so it'd be different than the burning bush. It's just, just fire from heaven. I mean, Elisha, a couple centuries later, would call down fire from heaven in a similar manner for the sacrifice when he was at, at odds and contention with the, pro- the prophets of Baal. But that was more of like a contentious situation, right? This is more just a beautiful, holy situation. So there's the fire, and there's the cloud. Everyone knows it's a holy moment, and something's happening that never happened before. And really, in all fairness, I don't think it's ever happened since. And we read about the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. The glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And the glory of the Lord on the temple. So we see the glory three times. And in light of that, we see that, they, that the people bowed their faces to the ground. The glory of the Lord, one time, two times, three times in the narrative. And the people bow their faces to the ground. And they proclaim, it says they worshipped. So when the glory of the Lord came, they worshipped and they praised the Lord. They proclaimed praises and they proclaimed his nature, that God is good and his mercy endures forever. One of his attributes of mercy and how he looks upon humanity. Remember, David talked a lot about the mercy of the Lord in the Psalms and even in the historical narrative. David David can best be known, Solomon's dad, for two key things. His heart for the Lord and his constant reference to the mercy of the Lord. Because David knew God had been merciful with him in the sin and the uh, adultery with Bathsheba, the having Uriah, her husband, killed in combat and covering it up, then his sin with the census that was based upon pride and the consequence of that, tens of thousands of people dying in a plague. And he just... He just knew that the Lord had been so good to him. In fact, he would say in the psalm, taste and see that the Lord is good. And he knew that he had been the recipient of great mercy from the Lord. Great mercy. That was part of his heart for the Lord. He loved the Lord before he found great mercy. He loved the Lord on the day he defeated Goliath. He loved the Lord on the day he defeated the lion and the bear. But he definitely knew a a deeper, more intimate relationship with the Lord and reciprocated that love for the Lord as he experienced mercy from the Lord. And so here a generation later, 10 years after he stepped into eternity, the people, his proclamation of God's mercy has impacted the people and they are proclaiming, when God's glory came, they are worshiping on their faces and they're proclaiming God's goodness and his mercy. And that's what we want to do when we come in here during worship time. I've said this before. 
singing songs to the Lord and worshiping the Lord, everyone's a little different. Like we're all wired differently in how we show emotion or how we focus on the Lord or how we think about the Lord. Some people are very expressive in worship, right? Some denominations and churches are very expressive in worship and how active they are and how they approach worship. Some are much more conservative and restraint in how they worship the Lord and how they, the songs they might sing or how they might even approach the liturgy, if you will, of the worship. But nonetheless, you know, there's worship involved. And when we're singing songs, when we're like when Danny's leading us in worship or Jeff next week and Jack around the corner, you know, we're not just singing songs. This is just a good reminder for us that when we come in here and we sing songs to the Lord, if the words are on the screen or not, that you just, your eyes are open or not, whether it's a soft song or a high, you know, Jeff bring, you know, Jeff might bring a suitcase and start banging that thing next week, right? Or Danny Don is like, is this the loop truck? Is he going to pray now? What's he going to do? You know, and we're, we're worshiping the Lord and we have that. Either way, it's worship, right? And it's expressive in different ways. But in the end, when we're singing these songs that are based upon truth, we're proclaiming his goodness and we're proclaiming his praises, and it's drawing us closer to the Lord. And more importantly, it's letting us touch eternity in time. That's what I want to encourage you to do when you come to church for worship, to come with expectation and, and sing the songs and, and let these songs bring the glory of the Lord to you. Clear your mind from work this day. Clear your mind from the conflicts and the obstacles and the challenges of the day. Clear your mind and focus on the Lord with your mind's eye and think about the Lord. Think about his mercy upon your life. Think about his goodness. Think about the grace he's shown you and sing to the Lord or if you don't want to sing, at least agree with what we're singing. Or sometimes when we get a new song and we don't know it, just let it minister to you. Let the words minister to you. And some songs might minister to you more than other songs, but it's really not meant to minister to us. It's meant to us to give the Lord worship and fall on our face and sing praises to him. But obviously some songs do because they remind us of different seasons in our life or we might relate to them more based upon what we're going through in our life at this time. Just know this, when we're singing songs, we're singing songs to the king of the universe, Lord God Almighty, I am who I am. And we are proclaiming his praises for the Lord is good and he's merciful and he's worthy of our praises and he's worthy of every praise we give him when we're singing songs. And so I just sing to the Lord. But I will say this, and I, I, if you know me, you know I'm like this. When we're worshiping, we're worshiping together collectively when we're singing. And it's worth noting, <clears throat> we're worshiping together collectively. And when we're doing worship, the one thing we don't want to do is to do something that makes attention be on us and not on Jesus. So just, you want to be self-conscious, but just something to be aware of. If you're doing something, it's like being at the dinner table, and it's a little bit different than everyone else is at the dinner table, and you kind of come in a high gear. I do this all the time, by the way. Jennifer's like in this gear, and I come home like, like a talkative kid from kindergarten, right? And I'm like, hey, 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 hey. I remember in Vermont, we had a service, and I tell this story occasionally, but there was only about eight of us in the sanctuary. It was the hotel meeting room. And there was a guy, we didn't quite have a read on him. He was a Vermonter, and we, were, we wanted to reach Vermonter, so we're trying to be gracious and patient. But Pam O'Connor was singing a cappella. We didn't have any musical instruments. And, you know, and there's, I used to tell his, her husband, Jim, he goes, I can't sing very good. And I'm like, you better sing, because I sing worse than you. There's only seven of us in here. 
So when she starts singing, you start singing. And we need to sing like we mean it. And uh, I'll never forget that service because she's singing, and Pam's the sweetest person ever. Remember, she's the one that ripped the page out of her Bible that said, why submit to your husbands? That Pam O'Connor. And um, she was past that by this time. <laughs> okay, But she's singing Abba Father. I just always, and, and that guy was there, and all of a sudden he just starts doing all this weird stuff. Like, not, not, like sometimes we clap or, you know, we, we sometimes shout out. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. That's, that's the Lord. You know, that's the house of the Lord, right? I mean, you go to Montebello, and there's that, there's that one girl in the front that's always like, she's like, I mean, it's a high school pep rally, and she's got the pep. You know what I'm saying? I have to prepare myself when I teach you the arts. Pep rally woman's there, and she's, and Danny knows what I'm talking about. He's going to see her tomorrow night at the art. You can't let it throw you off, so that's okay. We're not talking about that. We're talking about more like just, you know, that's healthy worship, and we have room for that. We understand that. All right, so anyways, he just starts getting weird, and I, I said, stop, stop, stop. You know how hard it is to stop a service in the middle of a service? Stop, 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 stop being weird. He was right across from me. I say, we are worshiping Jesus right now in this place, and you are taking the worship off Jesus. Stop it. You're welcome to stay if you want to worship Jesus with us. But if you're going to make it about you instead of Jesus, you got to go. Now, the Lord knows the heart. And he he was revealed for all kinds of stuff later on. That was the first of our encounters with that guy. The last time we had to carry him out of the the building, literally, the O'Connell Lodge Hotel, me and Jim. But I just remember like, wow, Lord, was that, ah, Lord. But... I, did I really have to do that? You know, it was, October was a tough month in 1995 in Vermont. You know, October is usually a tough month. You know, it's kind of spooky. And we had something every week, and that was one of those weeks. But I just thought, you know, I'm glad I did that because it was disrespectful to Pam, and it took the attention off the Lord. But that's the integrity of the sanctuary. See, it's important for me as the lead pastor and for Sam and Dean and all of us serving you here tonight that when you come in here and you're singing worship, you can focus on the Lord and praise the Lord, right? And you can fall on your face, if you will, before the Lord. Because when you do so, you're touching eternity and you're coming before the Lord. And we don't want to hinder that because you know what? One day you're going to really be on your face before the Lord in eternity. And we're going to be praising him like Revelation 4 and 5. They say, glory, glory. You know, the heavens declare your glory. We're, these, we're going to be like the four living creatures and the 24 elders and everybody else that's up there in the throne room. And they're proclaiming his praises and proclaiming his glory. He alone is good. He alone is mercy. He alone is worth our praises. So when you come to sing and worship, that's what you get to do. I can't do it for you. You can't do it for me. It's a time that we can really draw near to the Lord in his glory. It's twice a week, or if you only come on Tuesdays, it's that little 20-minute, 25-minute window. And you have it. And it's a chance to touch heaven. I was reading in Job today where God says to Job, hey, have you seen the gates of hell? Do you know where the door is to the abyss? I was like, whoa. I've never seen that in Job before. God's responding to Job. He says, hey, have you seen those gates of hell? Have you seen the door to the abyss? Does that mean there are gates of hell? Does that mean there is a door to the abyss? Why would God say that if they don't exist? I'll tell you what, that'll sober up your Tuesday morning. We're proclaiming his praises, his mercy, and his goodness. Yes, and amen. All right, now we read on. Everyone home happy, right? Because, you know, if you're praising the Lord and your heart's good with the Lord, you go home happy. Praise the Lord. All right, the second part of the chapter. 
Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer, and I've chosen this place by myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven, there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. For now I've chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be here forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. What a phrase that God saying like his heart. That's interesting. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked and do according to all that I've commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom as I covenanted with David your father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man as ruler in Israel. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I've set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot them from my land, which I've given them, and this house which I've sanctified by my name, I will cast out in my sight, and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And as for this house, which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done this to this land and this house? Then they will answer, because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and embraced other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this calamity on them. In this segment of scripture, we go back to the first time God appeared to Solomon more than a decade before, and he said, ask what you will, and I'll give you what you want. And remember, he asked for wisdom, and God, wisdom and understanding. And God said, because you asked for wisdom and understanding, I'll give it to you, and I'll also give you wealth and long life and prosper, prosperous things and all that kind of stuff. So it was a wonderful first time. It was like the, like the beginning. We talked about when Solomon first First became the king. It's like when you're the first round draft pick and you haven't really done anything yet, but you're taking the pictures. You got the team hat on. You're like posing with the owner. Like you're on the front end of it. We don't really know who you are or whether you're going to really get done while we signed you to this big contract. But now he's completed the temple. He's gotten the job done. He did what that main thing is supposed to do. And now he's had success. You know, he's won some championships, if you will. And now the owner, the Lord himself says, hey, coming to you again what do you want because now you're now you're a king and you're king of a kingdom and it's a lot different than the beginning of a, the end of a matter is better than the beginning because you don't know in the beginning where it really may go but when you get into it this far in attraction like you've been married 10 years you've been at a job for 10 years you, you, you kind of know where it's going you, you have more traction with what's what's happening what would you like and and uh, so he pre presents it before him, you know, I've heard your prayer, I'm going to do this, and, but now I, this is, you know, what's in front of you, and this is who I am, I've, I've heard your prayer, and this famous verse, like, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, I, I will hear their, hear their cry, I'll hear their prayer, I will forgive them, and, and do all these things, this, of course, many of you know this passage, right, this Second Chronicles passage, a lot of times it's in cards, it's quoted a lot in kind of a, religious political activism, you know, like that people would print. We did it, you know, on the National Day of Prayer. We we did it, you know, when Franklin Graham or Greg Lord and all those guys were doing their stuff. We we agreed. So we, we know the men of this church and the women as well. Most of you know this passage. 
The key to this passage and application really is hum- humility, right? If my people will humble themselves. I just, I love it when the Lord just goes straight to it. See, it's like dominoes. If you get the first domino right, then things line up. But if you don't get the first one right, nothing lines up. If you're prideful, whatever gets lined up behind it, nothing's good. Because God resists the proud. And it's just, it's me or you or whoever we could be doing our own thing in our flesh, in pride, sure of ourselves. But if we humble ourselves before the Lord, we know that God gives grace to the humble. And we know he's for the humble. And we, we know before honor there's humility. And we sometimes think of humility as something that we ask for and God gives it to us. Sometimes God just refines us with things that humble us. Public embarrassment, private embarrassment, embarrassment with the person in the mirror. Just stuff like that. That can humble us as well. Sometimes circumstances that are out of our control can humble us where we, we had a great plan and we just had a good plan and it happened. Everything went wrong. It looked good on paper. Everything went against us and we lost our money. We lost our name. We lost our reputation. It didn't go the way we thought it would. It's pretty humbling. When I resigned as a coach of U.S. Olympic surfing, you know, I was by my own choice but I saw the handwriting on the wall and I saw like a road trip, I prefer this exit and I prefer dictating the terms of this as opposed to more people being opposed to me going forward and trying to force me out. But it was humbling. It was very, you know, it was pretty humbling. It was very humbling actually because it wasn't under the most favorable circumstances. And, but you know, it was a good thing. It, 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 it was humbling and it, it did humble me. I was sure I was going to win gold at the Olympics. I didn't get nothing. But then again, in 2020, didn't anyone else, right? Yeah, it was a strange Olympics, right? No spectators and athletes wearing masks. I really didn't miss that much, and God knew that's the way it would be. Still, though, it was humbling. And whenever I look back on the Olympic coaching experience, I'm a little bit embarrassed. See, four years ago, I was a little bit mad. But now I'm a little bit more embarrassed because I... As I reflect on things, I'm kind of humbled by how I handled certain things. And I can see where some of that stuff that came upon me was my own doing. And that's how life works, right? Like, sometimes you're angry because this person did that at work and this happened this way. But once you cool off and you calm down and you respond instead of reacting, you realize, man, yeah, that, that's kind of self-inflicted. I brought that on myself a little bit here. If I'd acted more properly, more professionally in this situation, that wouldn't have gone that way. I shouldn't have said those things that way. I mean, in the end, I don't fault anyone for how it played out with the U.S. Olympic surfing. It was on me. And, you know, people went through my Bible studies trying to find stuff against me. They went through teachings even at the Ark Montebello. They went through all these things trying to find anywhere they could find my name, anywhere. There were paid private investigators trying to find stuff to use against me before the U.S. Olympic Committee. And that's pretty humbling. It, It really is. And the only thing I got in trouble for was things I said about U.S. Olympic surfing and temporal gold versus eternal gold, which was true, but it is kind of humbling when you're hanging out with people whose whole lives is built upon temporal gold. So realizing my superiors in the Olympic Committee knew I got in the pulpit saying, kind of making fun of temporal gold versus eternal gold, I spoke truth, but it was embarrassing, and it was disrespectful to them and everything they lived for and everything they were doing. So that is humbling. So if you ever talk about Olympic surfing with me, I, I, I'm kind of embarrassed. And that's okay, because I don't want to do that again with you. I was going to post something the other day from a teaching clip, and Jennifer's like, don't you think that might upset the person who you're quoting? I'm like, I'm not quoting them directly. Still, they're going to know who, who it is. Oh, yeah, better, better not. 
See, you want to learn. See, you learn from mistakes because mistakes humble you, and then you get better. So embarrassment is something that God allows in the cause and effect of the human experience. You embarrass, you do something foolish, get embarrassed. That's cause and effect. But don't get defensive or angry. Work through it and get better and grow and learn from it. Because his prayer is based upon a national prayer for their mistakes. God's saying they're going to make mistakes. So if you'll humble yourself in your mistake, you can come here, find forgiveness and restoration, and I'll heal the land. But if you don't learn from your mistakes, this temple is going to be a a hissing and a byword. And there'll be nothing left. And people are going to say, why did, why did that ever happen? It would be because you forsook me and you didn't humble yourself. You didn't learn from your mistakes. Sin's embarrassing. The only thing that's more embarrassing is not repenting and learning from it. Yes and amen. Got to learn. When, when circumstances humble you, when your own folly humbles you, when the Lord humbles you, and when you just by good common sense, spending time in the word of God, are humbled, good, very good. Receive the correction and humble yourself. Make humility a disposition. Make it your disposition to put others first, to think of others, to serve others. Make it your disposition so it's your DNA and who you are, and it's less likely you'll have grand embarrassment and public humiliation, which I think we all want to avoid. So humility was the key. The rest of all this, it's promises favorable or negative, and if you want to be established, obey the word. If you don't, you're going to get uprooted. It's powerful phrases there. Chapter 8. Now, it came to pass at the end of 20 years when Solomon had built the house of the Lord and his own house that the cities which Hiram had given to Solomon, Solomon built them, and he settled the children of Israel there. And Solomon went to Hamath Zobah and seized it. He also built Tadmor in the wilderness and also uh, all the stored cities which he built in Hamath. He built Upper Beth Horon and Lower Beth Horon, fortified cities with walls, gates and bars, also Baloth and all the stored cities that Solomon had and all the chariot cities and the cities of the Calvary and all that Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and all the land of his dominion. All the people who were left of the Hittites, the Amorites, Perizzites, Hittites, and Jebusites, those are all the Canaanites, who are not of Israel, that is, their descendants who are left in the land after them, whom the children of Israel did not destroy. From these, Solomon raised up forced labor as it is to this day. But Solomon did not make the children of Israel servants for his work. Some were men of war, captains of his army, officers, captains of his chariots and his cavalry, and others were chiefs of the officials of King Solomon, 250 who ruled over the people. Now Solomon brought the daughter of Pharaoh up from the city of David to the house he had built for her, for he said, My wife shall not dwell in the house of King David of Israel, because the places to which the ark of the Lord has come are holy. Wow, so that's just a bad look right there. Verse 12. Then Solomon offered burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of the Lord, which he had built before the festival, according to the daily rate, offering according to the commandments of Moses for the Sabbath, the new moons, the three appointed yearly feasts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And according to the order of David his father, he appointed the divisions of the priests for their services, the Levites for their duties, that is, to praise and serve before the priest, as a duty of each day required, and the gatekeepers by their divisions at each gate. For so David the man of God had commanded. They did not depart from the commandment, excuse me, they did not depart from the command of the king, 
to the priests and the Levites concerning any matter or concerning the treasuries. Now, all the work of Solomon were well ordered from the day of the foundation of the house of the Lord until it was finished. So the house of the Lord was completed. Then Solomon went to Ezon Geber, Eloth, and the seacoast of the land of Edom. And Hiram sent him ships. Remember, they were the Sidonians, so they were ship people. By the hand of his servants and servants who knew the sea... And they went with the servants of Solomon to Ophir and acquired 450 talents of gold from there and brought it to King Solomon. So chapter 8 is really like the, the back of his baseball card, if you will. These are kind of all his accomplishments, his batting average, you know, his RBIs, his home runs. If you know, follow me on that, you guys do. It, it, this is his resume. This is, ladies, this is his resume he's submitting. Right? This, is, this really is a favorable look at his resume. Now, Kings reveals the sins of Solomon and the consequences of Solomon. Chronicles doesn't do that. did the same thing with David. It just kind of gives the data, the facts, as far as organization, administration, what kind of a king, what kind of politicians they were, that sort of a thing. So at face value, this is a pretty impressive chapter for Solomon. He had a great workforce, 250 division managers, over tens of thousands of people, cheap labor. Whatever he wanted to build, he built. Whatever he wanted to own, he owned. He had strong military. He had uh, strong economic growth. The gold of Ophir, we don't know where Ophir is. No one knows for sure. But he, man, he built a fleet. He got a fleet of ships and he got gold and he just, he had it rolling. Now the next chapter, which we'll get to in a moment, again, it's an extension of this, but this is really like achievements. But one thing that does stand out to me we already talked about Pharaoh's daughter, and that that's the beginning, like the one little thing leads to all the other things. So we cover that in detail. But just what a bad look that your wife can't even, your wife by political allegiance can't even stay in your neighborhood because she worships other gods. And, oh, I just, and, and the irony of this is Solomon is so, if you, if you read the text, did you notice he obeyed all the things he was supposed to do? In other words, he went to church. He tithed. He supported fundraisers. He was, a, he was religious. Did you catch that? He did everything that he was supposed to do with religion in Israel in this chapter. You know, and I just really want to talk about like, wow, you know, he, he laid the foundation. He finished the work. He completed it all. And I mean, that jumps out at me, right? Like, I like achievement. I like success. I like people getting stuff done. Hey, he had the job, he got it done, he finished it. He, hey, last chapter it said, how many times do you see this in the Bible? It said he accomplished all that came his way. He was successfully accomplished. You don't even see the word successful too often in the Bible. Solomon's like, he's successful. He finishes stuff. He gets it done. He's a guy. He's, he's, he's writing books. His books are for sale at John Wayne Airport. You know, you, you see him, you know, those business books you see at the airport. Hey, the latest book from Solomon. How to win people and influence them and build everything you want to in Lebanon, you know? Like, he's that guy. And he goes to church. He talks about God. He's got faith. But he doesn't have fire. He doesn't have fire. And there's subtle cracks in the armor here because we already know that that first chink in the armor was Pharaoh's daughter that he married for political allegiances. And the irony of the gold shields that he builds in the next chapter, that it would be Pharaoh Necho, two generations later, who would come and take him from his grandson, or his son Rehoboam. Oh, the irony of it. The, you know, we, 
we know it's wrong, then we allow it, then we approve of it, then we embrace it, and then we're ensnared to it. Pharaoh's daughter, coming, marrying Pharaoh's daughter was his great downfall. And all that we're reading about, she's the one that was the beginning of the end for him because he multiplied wives, he multiplied the false gods for those, those wives. He, he didn't go with it, but he tolerated it, and then he permitted it, and then he built them, and then he worshipped them. And that's a little leaven, leaven's a whole lump. Pharaoh's daughter is his downfall. This random verse is the beginning of the end for Solomon. And you want to like look at verse 16 and go like, oh, this is awesome. He finished the work. It was completed. He's that guy that gets stuff done. But as he's getting stuff done on the outside and, you know, it's totally successful by any man's perspective or woman's perspective, these chinks in the armor with Pharaoh's daughter was going to be the undoing, not just for him in the end of his life, but his children and his children's children. Chapter 9. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon, she came to Jerusalem to test Solomon with hard questions, having a very great retinue, camels and bore spices, gold in abundance, and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him with all that was in her heart. So Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing so difficult for Solomon that he could not explain it to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the servants of his waiters and their apparel, his cupbearers and their apparel, his entryway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. Then she said to the king, it was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe their words until I came and saw with my own eyes, and indeed the half of the greatness of your wisdom was not told me. You exceed the fame of which I heard. Happy are your men, and happy are those your servants who stand continually before you, and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, who delighted in you, setting you on his throne to be king for the Lord, God, for the Lord your God. Because your God has loved Israel to establish them forever, therefore he made you king over them to do justice and righteousness. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold, spices in great abundance, and precious stones. There were never any spices such as those that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Also the servants of Hiram and the servants of Solomon, who brought gold from Ophir, brought algam wood and precious stones. And the king made walkways of algam wood for the house of the Lord, for the king's house. Also harps and string instruments for singers. And there was none such as these had been seen before in the land of Judah. Now King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all she desired, whatever she asked, much more than she had brought to the king, so she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. Well, here she is, the Queen of Sheba. Like so many people in that surrounding region, she heard of his greatness, his wisdom. It, there's some ironies in this passage. The first couple of ironies that get my attention is the wisdom, the wisdom, the wisdom. He just, he just had it. He had knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. And, you know, we get it too, though. We just can read Proverbs. Everything that God showed him of practical common sense that's worth remembering by the Holy Spirit is in our Bible. We've got 31 chapters in Proverbs. That's why I read Proverbs every day. Because I don't read Proverbs to be saved. I read Proverbs to not be stupid. Because Proverbs is common sense. 
And it gives you a good contrast. Almost every proverb shows you, this is the wise man, this is the fool. This is the godly woman, this is the foolish woman. It's cause and effect. Exhibit A, exhibit B. And it's so edifying. I read Proverbs at night. Or if my morning's a little different because it's like Timmy came over doing laundry and we're just hanging out chatting and my day got a different start than I imagined, I'll still go in the room. So instead of the more like slightly longer Bible study I might have, like presently in Job, I'll just read a few Proverbs, put the word in my mind and think about it and get out there and go for a walk on the bike path with my beautiful wife, okay? That's what I'll do. So Proverbs is always my backup study in the morning if somehow my schedule got switched up a little bit by certain circumstances. Otherwise, still, it's always my evening thing to read Proverbs. Sometimes Jennifer's like, hey, read them out loud for me. Like, just we just did that last night. Just read about those Proverbs, and there it goes. So the wisdom that she, the Queen of Sheba said, hey, we get it too. We get it too. All you have to do is read the Proverbs. Isn't that awesome? I mean, that's really awesome that we're, the, the people that came to hear all this, we get to hear it every time we just open our Bible and read Proverbs. No matter what translation, by and large, you're reading, it's going to bring forth those truths of Proverbs that help us to make good decisions in life and, and be fruitful for the Lord in a practical sense. There's just great common sense. And Pastor Chuck Smith used to say this quite often, the best sense, more often than not, is common sense. And it's so true, and it's there for us in Proverbs. By wise counsel, make war. And the multitude of counselors, uh, sin is that uh, wisdom's not lacking, right? So the bigger decision, the more important it is to get other people to weigh in on it, right? Like just stuff like that. It's super helpful. You, you know, like when I read Proverbs, things come to my mind that make me think, like, hey, I need to pray a little more about that. Let's, let's think that one through a little bit more. Um, I'll show you Jennifer's opinion on that. And she even get Hannah's opinion on that one right there, right? Let's see what Sam has to say about that. There's, you know, and then sometimes it's like, no, just do what you know to do because you got need to do it. And now it's time because the, the prudent forsake evil and take refuge, but the foolish pass on are punished. So today's the day of action. See, that's how the problems work. But in this account um, of this story, I find it ironic that the Queen of Sheba says to him, the Lord God, she, she's like praising God, which is interesting. But she said, the Lord puts you over his people to do justice and righteousness. <laughs> and the irony is he, 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 he didn't do the righteousness. He might have done the justice, but he didn't do the righteousness. Oh, it's so tough. It's so tough. Now, Jesus talked about the Queen of Sheba. Here in verse 5, Jesus said, that one wiser than that the queen of Sheba would rise up in the generation of his generation to condemn the nation of Israel that rejected him because one wiser than Solomon was in their midst. And of course, we know in Jesus, the New Testament tells us that in him all wisdom of God dwells. So all wisdom that we of salvation, eternity, our existence, our purpose, all, it's in Jesus. Ultimately, the practical wisdom of Solomon taps out in time, space, and matter and points us, you know, Inevitably, the truest wisdom is salvation by grace through faith. For the, though the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world, uh, the world's wisdom is foolishness to him. And God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. So the wisdom of God is that we're saved through faith by grace, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And what's interesting to me about this, she says, not the half of it has been told to me. So she'd heard this report like, oh, I've heard all about this guy. And she hadn't even heard half of it, which is exactly the way it is for us with Jesus. Think about that. Isn't that the way it is for us with Jesus? All that we know about Jesus, we don't know hardly anything about Jesus. 
What is, what's it going to be like when we cast our crowns before Christ in heaven? From glory to glory. We haven't even scratched the surface what it means to know Jesus. That's why you come and praise the Lord and fall on your face and worship like we started this message tonight. We don't, we don't know even the beginning of the worship of Jesus and the presence of Jesus and the glory of Jesus. Now, Thomas said, I see and believe. Jesus said, blessed are those who believe having not seen. So we have a blessing. But in John's gospel, he says something at the very end where he said this. This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Every day is a new opportunity to grow in faith with Jesus Christ. Every day is a new opportunity to see the Lord's handiwork on your life. Every day is a new day to press in and see the King of Kings working in your life with his personal touch, knowing every hair on your head, every cell in your body, and knowing his divine purposes for your life. Isn't that a beautiful thing? And if she hadn't seen half the truth of Solomon, how much more are we still waiting to see from glory to glory of the things being unveiled for us in our relationship with Christ? Praise the Lord. Solomon's glory is so temporal. The glory of the Lord is eternal, and it's not yet revealed, but when he comes in his glory, we shall be with him in his glory. That's the craziest thing. His glory becomes our glory. Who can even understand such things? I'm still thinking about the Job text. The gates of hell and the door of the abyss. I thought, whoa, what is that? Verse 13, we wrap it up. The weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was six, this is the 666, the only other 666 in the Bible, 666 talents of gold, besides what the traveling merchants and traders brought. All the kings of Arabia and the governors of the country brought gold and silver to Solomon. And King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold, 600 shekels of hammered gold went into each shield. He also made 300 shields of hammered gold, 300 shekels of gold went into each shield. The king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. These are the gold shields that the pharaoh of Egypt came up and took a generation later from his son. Verse 17. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. The throne had six steps with footstools of gold, which were fastened to the throne. There were armrests on either side of the place of the seat. Two lions stood beside the armrest. Twelve lions stood there, one on each side of the six steps. Nothing like this had been for any other kingdom. All of King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold. All the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Not one was silver, for this was accounted as nothing in the days of Solomon. For the king's ships went to Tarshish with the servants of Hiram once every three years, and the merchant ships came back, and they brought gold, silver, ivory, apes, and monkeys. <laughs> He's like Michael Jackson with his exotic animals up in Santa Barbara, right? You know, I guess you can do that when you're a king and you got all that money. Huh? It's a lot of gold. Can't take it with you, right? Verse 22. So King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom, and all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. Each man brought his present, articles of silver and gold, Garments, armor, spices, horses, and mules at a set rate year by year. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities with the king at Jerusalem. So he reigned over all the kings from the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and he made cedar trees as abundant as sycamores, which are in the lowland. And they brought horses to Solomon from Egypt, from all the lands. Again, that's another no-no. They're told in Deuteronomy, don't ever multiply horses like that. See, it just all compounds negatively for a bad ending. Verse 29, 
Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon, first and last, are they not written in the book of Nathan the prophet, in the prophecy Ahijah, the Shilonite, and the visions of Edo, the seer, concerning Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel 40 years. Then Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father, and Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. Most people project Solomon's death being about the age of 60, so he lived like 10 years less than his dad, David. And in the end of his life, when he wrote Ecclesiastes, he said that the fool and the wise man have this in common. They both go to the grave. Since all that is to be forgotten in the days to come, and how does a wise man die? As a fool. So put that over all of his glory. Yeah. The Lord's throne is one that matters. You can keep your ivory throne with gold. Yes, and amen. 